Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Thank you, Hilde. We had such great feedback from our recent podcast on the Genome Project that we've invited our special guests back because there's just so much information we can impart. With us again today is Jane Wilkinson. Dr. Wilkinson is Senior Director of the Broad Genomics Alliance Management Team at MIT and Harvard. And also back is Assistant Biology Professor at the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Studies and Research at MIT, Dr. Francisco J. Sanchez-Rivera working hard in his laboratory to uncover the secrets of the genome and better ways to treat people with cancer. Hilde, you've put together another great podcast, so I'll let you take it away. We're so happy to be back and to welcome Jane and Francisco, who helped create our fabulous podcast, What Did the Human Genome Project Ever Do for Us? Don't miss it. Take a look uh, at all the podcast platforms and find it, you'll really enjoy it. We borrowed the idea for the title from Monty Python, but we really did explore this question. There are terms that are basic to genomics, including the name itself, as well as genes, DNA, sequencing, and oh, wait a minute, don't be frightened. If you didn't listen to our prior podcast, I promise as we talk about how the Human Genome Project shaped future efforts in genetic engineering and lung cancer. We'll explain these terms. It'll be ready for a first grader. So grab your first grader so they can listen as well. So Jane, who was a part of the original Human Genome Project, can you give us some idea about how the knowledge we gained from this project led to important testing we now do in in cancer research? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and it's so good to be back again. Um, and it's, it's, it's really lovely for us to kind of really round out um, how we have moved from discovering the human genome to really putting it to use. I'm going to touch a little bit about testing, but, you know, for me, Francisco is a hero um, of, of this podcast because he's really going to tell us about how we've, how we've pushed this now into a tool. But anyway, um, genetic testing in, um, in cancer um, testing has been around for, for quite a while. Um, you know, and I think some of the most obvious applications of, of what the genome revealed to us and what has presented us now with testing options. Um, you know, I think there's one thing we have to talk about, which is there's always a hereditary um, component um, to cancer. And so, for example, there are about more than 50 um, different um, syndromes that are um, related to cancer that are hereditary, meaning that you would have inherited a copy um, of the gene or two from your parents. Most of the the hereditary cancer syndromes are associated with um, actually getting cancer itself. But there's also several um, genetic mutations that can be associated with increasing the risk of getting cancer. So, you know, it's really important to understand um, the capability and the utility of those testing. 
Um, you know, one thing I will say, um, there's a lot of direct-to-consumer testing out there. You can jump on the internet, you can order a kit, um, and you can get your results back. Um, you know, I do think that that's incredibly powerful, and it really puts um, the tool into the hand of the patient. Um, but I would also really, really strongly recommend um, folks who are thinking about using these types of testings around um around the hereditary component of cancer to really work closely with a genetic counselor who can really kind of help you walk through um, the risk and the outcomes and also the data itself. Um, but I think, you know, um, one of the most important things about um, about understanding the, gene the genetics of cancer is actually doing genetic analysis on the tumor itself. And I think that's a tool that has really become very, very powerful in the clinic. Um, and it's quite honestly now just become a standard, um, you know, part of, of cancer care, which is just amazing, especially for someone who was fumbling around in the human genome project, wondering where we would ever end up. This is incredibly powerful. You know, so there's a couple of different tests that oncologists will run on the tumor itself. And the genetic testing of the tumor doesn't isn't necessarily on a solid tumor. It's not on a physical tumor, such as what we would expect to see in something like lung or breast um, cancer. There's also um, capabilities to do what we call liquid tumor testing. So um, understanding the, uh, the genetic component of more bloodborne um, types of cancer. Um, and I think what, what that kind of genetic testing does for us on the tumor um, and also on, on, the, on, the, um, on the blood itself is it gives us an idea of whether or not there is um, evidence of drug resistance in that particular type of tumor and also in, in, on the kind of good news um, side of it, drug response as well. So by characterizing the tumor itself, we can really start to understand um, a menu of options for treatments for patients. Um, and you know, to take that leap into lung cancer specifically, there's a bunch of different genes that we're particularly interested in, um, EGFR, KRAS and ALK, those are just three of many different genes that are um, implicated in lung cancer. And, you know, we often use the, um, the understanding of the mutations in those genes in lung cancer to really decide what the treatment path is for patients, but then also critically important, um, and especially for folks who are listening to this podcast, because I, I know um, they are you know, we, we have some listeners who are really, really, really invested in this. Um, understanding the genetics of the tumor itself can also guide and steer patients into enrolling cl into clinical trials. I'm not saying that there's an answer to everything yet, but by understanding the, you know, the characteristics of the tumor, especially at the genetic level, um, it does allow patients to enroll into clinical trials and allow them to be potentially part of the future of, of curing lung cancer. So, you know, for me, that is that that's 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 the power of genetics when we're in it, when we're actually in the tumor and when we're in cancer itself. I was going to say we've done uh, at least three, now I think four podcasts looking at um, when you're talking about genetic testing um, of the tumor. Many people know this as biomarker testing. So that is exactly 
you know, looking to see if, if a person who is diagnosed with lung cancer, for example, has one of these biomarkers, such as you mentioned, EGFR, KRAS, and ALK positive. So those biomarker testings um, have now become, um, there's so many that can be tested for. There are some incredible companies that um, are looking at solid tumors and liquid tumors. So getting that information, um, I think the great thing is it will take it outside of the box. So we always think about lung cancer. We think about rectal cancer. We think about breast cancer. But it may be that your particular biomarker has more in common with a different organ than, than within the same organ. So it may be that you wind up getting medication that was aimed for, for example, like uh, breast cancer, that may be more effective for another organ system's cancer. So it's just, yeah. we're, we're just at the beginning of um, like uncovering all this one wonderful information that's come from um, the Human Genome Project. It's just, it's wonderful. There's another opportunity on the horizon as well, where we're um, where folks are going to start looking at circulating tumor cells. So as tumors exist and and grow within the human body, they shed um, cells as they're going about their daily business. Um, and there are some opportunities to identify these cells that are floating around the body as a way to um, think about early detection and screening, but then also um, on disease progression itself. Um, and the technology is advancing pretty quickly to the point where I think we're getting close to actually identifying the primary tumor when we pick up on a circulating tumor, um, which kind of helps to pinpoint um, where, where the tumor of origin um, is going to be. Um, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done in that field, but, um, you know, from a testing point of view, I think that's also on the horizon. I really want to hear from Francisco about how he's using the genome um, and how it is really shaping the future um, of, of cancer in his lab. Can I just ask a question? And it may be that Francisco is the one to answer it. So, What's, uh, what's the big deal about figuring out what the primary tumor is? Like, why is that important? I think it's important to know the, the source of the circulating tumor cells because it allows you to then, on one hand, guide treatment to an extent, knowing that the, the tumor, say the primary tumor is in the lung or the pancreas or the liver or somewhere else some therapies that could be tailored depending on the tissue of origin, independent of, of mutation. That's one important point. The second one is that if a disease is metastasizing and you know it's derived from a primary pancreatic tumor, for instance, then that is much more deadly than other types of, of tumors that shed cells uh, as they progress, because some tumors are much more metastatic than others. That would be a clear path to a different kind of treatment. Is that what you're saying? To an extent, but it's not, um, you know, I'm not a clinician, so I, I can't really comment on the specific um, treatment paradigms. But to an extent, there is uh, an ability to, to match certain therapies if you know what the primary tumor is. Yes. That's great. I didn't want to um, divert you from Jane's question about what's, what's happening in your lab. Yeah, no, so I maybe... think that I, I first want to, to mention a couple of points on, on what Jane, Jane nicely set up the stage here. Uh, a few things. Um, 
you, I think Hildi mentioned that um, there are certain therapies that are uh, designed for some mutations in some tissues, but not necessarily others. But I think that's where the power of genetics comes in. Uh, for instance, um, knowing that two different tumor types have the same type of oncogenic driver by itself is useful information to uh, suggest that a therapy targeting that driver might be useful in both of these tumor types, even though they arise from different tissues. What, so what is an oncogenic driver? Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, for, so- For the um, first graders in the audience. <laughs> yeah, so um, as I mentioned in the, in the last podcast, you know, genes encode proteins. Um, and there are two main classes of genes that are involving cancer that drive cancer and those that prevent cancer. The ones that drive cancer are typically called oncogenes. KRAS, EGFR, and ALK are oncogenes. So when they get mutated or hyperactivated, they promote cancer. Those that promote cancer and those that inhibit cancer. Those that promote cancer are typically referred to as oncogenes, and those that prevent or suppress cancer are called tumor suppressor genes. So for instance, the genes that Jane mentioned earlier, KRAS, EGFR, ALK, those are oncogenes. So when mutated, they promote tumor development, progression, and in some cases, modulate the, the responses to uh, chemotherapies and targeted therapies. But on the other hand, genes like 53, which I think we discussed briefly on the last podcast, but it's one of the genes that I study, um, is a tumor suppressor gene. So when mutated, it uh, leads to cancer because that mutation inactivates the, the function of the gene. I've got a question for both of our wonderful panel members, and welcome back. It almost feels like a very complex Sudoku game or crossword puzzle in that you now have outlined the mapping, which is so important. You've also outlined the two genes that bounce off each other and battle each other in some cases. Do you see uh, the technology and the computer speed and all the important things coming along to make it easier to solve the puzzles? Because these are very tricky issues right now. That's where genetics and genomics comes in. For instance, just to put it in perspective, the human genome defined the blueprint of, of what makes us humans um, at the DNA level. And only by knowing how the normal genome looks, how the normal DNA looks and is written, knowing that normal blueprint um, is how we can know when things go wrong in terms of mutations, you can identify exactly what those mutations are because you have a reference to uh, compare it to. So for instance, genes like KRAS are typically mutated through a single nucleotide alteration. So one letter in the gene and in the genome is altered and that is sufficient to cause the activation of this gene, an oncogene, and lead to tumor development and progression. It's amazing. It's amazing. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that it was, that was Yeah, I, I think, yeah, no, no, you made it very clear. And for anybody who just wants a little bit more um, explanation, please do tune into our um, other, other podcasts where you did explain this in more detail. But I think you've said enough that makes it, you know, possible to comprehend. 
Yeah, so so here is where the the patient heterogeneity and diversity comes into play. You might have in the clinic five different patients, all of which have lung cancer. Two of them might have one KRAS mutation, one letter changed, which leads to one particular KRAS mutation. And the three other patients might have a different KRAS mutation. Sounds simple. And you can say, well, all five patients have a KRAS mutation. Therefore, they should be sensitive to the same types of therapies. They actually aren't. So are you saying that a KRAS mutation, what that means is that just one letter in the sequence is off? So it just depends on which one of those letters is off? To exactly. suggest it's a subtype or a different kind of KRAS. Is that right? Exactly. And to make matters more interesting, but also more complex, some of these mutations that are different happen in the same location. The, the most common mutation is at position 12 of KRAS, and you can have various flavors of that mutation at position 12. Some of the most common ones are G12D, G12B, and G12C. And what makes this very exciting, but also complicated, is that there are now drugs that are able to directly target the G12C mutation, but there are not drugs, at least not in the clinic right now, that can target the other types of mutations. So by knowing the exact letter change, you can tailor a therapy to a patient. Amazing. I, it's just... KRAS, because it's the most commonly studied oncogene, but we have you know 19,999 roughly other genes in the genome that can be mutated in different ways in cancer. And so we basically have a very poor understanding of what types of mutations can alter the function of all of these genes. And to make matters more complicated, different patients have different mutations in all of these different genes. So do they just set up these like extremely complex algorithms to try to pinpoint some of these Yeah, so there's a, there's a combination of uh, just knowing the sequence, knowing the mutation, just reading that blueprint for, for that gene, um, combined with years, decades of, of uh, functional studies in the lab. So functional studies, meaning there have been a variety of experiments in, in cells and, and animals and, and, and human you know, clinical trials that have um, pinpointed the function of some of these mutations um, in cancer. So we know the function of some of those that gets integrated into um, some of the diagnostic and clinical treatment decisions nowadays, which is still, again, very impressive to me. And this is what we typically refer to as precision medicine or precision oncology. There are also computational methods that take into account protein evolution and conservation of sequences. I could get into the weeds if you want to, but I think uh, just take my word for it, that it allows you to predict to some extent what the 
most likely effect of a given mutation might be depending on the gene and depending on yeah. the location and then on the other hand which is what uh, so in my lab we we uh, combine some of those methods with functional genomics um, and genome editing which i briefly touched upon on the on the last podcast I think it's really important for us to um, highlight that a lot of this, a lot of this work and a lot of this analysis around um, around the implications of these um, the the genomes in these tumors is really around using machine learning and artificial intelligence and deep learning, really kind of using uh, tremendous com- uh, computational um, powers to really interrogate and analyze the, the sheer amount of data that's just tumbling out of um, out of not just the human body in, in understanding the genetic characterization um, of the tumors itself, but also tumbling, pouring out of the labs and out of the experiments and out of the research, um, which is really enabling us to kind of really understand what's happening at, at that cellular and genetic level. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. As thousands of audience members know, Upstage Lung Cancer events, the concerts, are fun, meaningful, inspiring, and memorable. And you should know that we invest in cutting-edge diagnostic research to find lung cancer early and greatly improve on the five-year survival rate. We also bring voice to the fact that young people get lung cancer. They really do. Unfortunately, doctors don't know how or why. Proceeds from our concerts support research to help find answers to these questions. Hilde Grossman and her team aim to entertain and inform because the show must go on. Find out how you can help at upstagelungcancer.org. Now back to the podcast, here's Hilde. Upstage lung cancer is very, very interested in early detection. So I don't know that you've exhausted everything you wanted to say, Francisco. I'm guessing not. Um, But (laughs) is there, from all this complexity and understanding, you know, um, what a normal, quote unquote, normal genetic profile looks like, is there some way that one could take this into the future to do some testing that doesn't cost an arm and a leg or is not too impossible uh, to help predict uh, or, or detect uh, lung cancer, let's say, early. There, there's multiple options there. One uh, that uh, involves imaging. Early imaging, I could see that becoming, to some extent, routine when combined with uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms. Um, For instance, this has been uh, done in in breast cancer and there's a um, a researcher here at at the KI and also um, at the uh, computer sciences department called Regina Barsilai who has pioneered um, imaging-based machine learning methods to to detect uh, breast cancer, which could also be applied to other tumor types. so I could see that imaging becoming an important modality in that sense. The other one to me is really uh, sequencing, uh, DNA sequencing, because um, thanks to the human genome, cancer genome atlas, and many other types of, of large-scale efforts, that has made the technologies and the um, sequencing costs drop dramatically. So sequencing is becoming more and more 
cheap every day. Uh, we right now, like I said, like I've said before, a patient goes into the clinic and their tumors are uh, sequenced routinely. Not everywhere, but uh, in, in, in many of the um, cancer hospitals. A sequencing test, I don't know exactly the cost, but in terms of the sequencing itself, uh, it, it gets cheaper and cheaper over time. So I think sequencing is probably our most powerful weapon uh, in that sense, because if you can have uh, sufficient genomic data to allow you to know whether a certain mutation that you don't, you previously didn't know if it's functional or not. If you know that that mutation is there, you can probably use it to predict whether a person will develop cancer or other diseases um, in, in the long term. So would that be easier to do an early detection using blood rather than, you know, like a CT scan if you're talking about screening? I think so. I mean, I'm always interested in making it more available to the masses, you know, set up a CT scan. There are already so many criteria that you have to satisfy yeah. to get that. So, done. I mean, for instance, you can, you can, you can isolate blood from people, a hundred, a thousand, 10,000 people, and all of them can be uh, sequenced. That is much faster than, than CTing or imaging all of those people. The, some of the ethical considerations that we discussed on, on the last podcast, which is a completely different uh, theme, but that's something to keep in mind. But, you know, technologies like 23andMe and others are doing something similar routinely. Uh, and I think based on the fact that these sequencing technologies are so cheap, I could definitely envision this becoming routine in the not so distant future. And just a just a reminder for our listeners on the evolution of the cost of sequencing a human genome. The human genome project that I was involved in cost three billion dollars. Actually, it cost two point seven billion dollars just for the purists out there. And um, you know, we can now think about sequencing um, a human genome for less than a couple of hundred dollars. You know, it, that that price drop is incredible. And there are now new projects that are aiming to diversify the collection of human genomes that are sequenced. There's a project called 1000 Genomes, and then there are other consortia that are um, sequencing genomes more completely from telomere to telomere. That's the telomere to telomere consortium. Wait, what's a telomere? Telomeres are basically the end structure of the chromosomes that uh, solve one of the biggest problems in molecular biology called the the end replication problem. Basically, if we didn't have telomeres, our chromosomes would get shorter and shorter over time. But because we have those telomeres, telomeric proteins, they keep extending the ends of the chromosome so that we retain a complete and cap chromosome from end to end. So they stay stay at a fixed distance or length? Length, yeah. Uh, but that that we, that gets uh, complicated, and there are some debates as to what what the, the length of telomeres means. And uh, but definitely implications in cancer in that sense, and they they go in, in both directions depending on the tumor type and, and on the research. So yeah, our our collection of genomes is increasing. It's importantly becoming more diverse. So the initial human genome was just one genome out of the billions of genomes that exist in the world. Now new projects are diversifying that. And by that, I mean sequencing genomes of people from all over the world so that we have a better understanding of how uh, genomic variation 
influence uh, disease. And this relates to cancer, of course, but also many other diseases. So, for example, what's the benefit of having the heterogeneity that you would get from sequencing or random sampling sequences from people all over the world versus, let's say there's a country, I know like Finland years ago didn't have much influx or, or exodus, you know, so that you have a population that's pretty stable. What's the benefit of a more... Um, homogeneous versus heterogeneous population? Icelandic populations and, and Finnish populations, um, those types of genetic and, and genomic studies are useful because you can essentially look at crosses, genetic crosses that you would typically do in the lab. And because most of them have a large percentage of their genomes is identical, you can find the, the consequences in disease development when you have two copies of the same gene. So each gene has two alleles, one from mother, one from father. And if you have the same two alleles of a given version or configuration or mutation, um, then you can assess what happens when you have those two alleles versus just one from, you know, one population and one from a different population. It allows you to infer the function of that gene in disease, but also the function of that specific variant that exists in that population. That means that if you only study that population, you're only getting information about that population. And there's substantial evidence um, over the years that different populations have different um, SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and those are oh, essentially easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> these are single nucleotide polymorphisms. That means that um, single letters in the DNA are different depending on the population. So some populations wouldn't have so, the same letters, or the yeah. So you might have letters. an A. You might have an A in a gene, a, a position in a gene. I might have a T. J might have a G. Uh, and Jordan might have a C, for instance. Yes. Um, so that is actually very important because it's been shown in, in over the years that depending on the type of SNPs that someone has, their propensity for certain diseases like cancer can be different. And this relates to you know, disparities in, in, in both research, cancer research, but also in general um, across multiple diseases. So we need to understand how genetic variation influences disease um, uh, development and, and treatment, not only for one population. So, wow, this is, this is just, um, it's mind boggling, the complexity, the details, the, the micro data, I don't know if there's such a word, but anyway, the <laughs> that comes from all this kind of research. Um, I know Jane um, at the, at the Koch Institute, uh, it's doing cancer research on all kinds of issues and areas. So um, yeah, it's like uh, how to take things at a microscopic level and then look at how um, applications can be generated, um, how um, detection can be, um, created and thought about in an interesting, creative way. And then, yeah, so it's just, uh, it boggles my mind what goes on 
<laughs> in laboratories yeah. like yours and all over the world. Yeah, so from, from before I forget, just from our point of view in the lab, but we're one of the missions that we have is to uh, assess the function of all these different genetic variants that are observed in cancer patients. So I'm interested in finding out when you get the profile, DNA profile of a tumor from a patient, if we see 50 different mutations, what are the function of all those mutations and how those influence the development and um, therapeutic responses of those tumors? Because it's becoming more clear over time that every patient is unique so understanding how the mutations in one patient contributed to that tumor, to that disease, and how it influences the treatment might not necessarily be the same mechanisms that are seen in another patient. We need to understand both what each of these mutations, each of these genetic variants is doing in the context of cancer, but also how the combination of variants in a given tumor sums up to uh, influence that disease. And that might be different depending on the on the patients. G12D versus G12C in KRAS is just one example. And we need to, we need many more functionally validated examples of that. Maybe this is our time to wrap up. Although every time we end, this is now the second time we've ended. I I I want more and more. It's so complicated and so interesting. I was just thinking as you were just, you know, Francisco, as you were just saying that last comment. What I've known or have learned is that in all of us, cancers come and go, and I think we may have touched on this last time, but people get cancers that come and go all the time. Some stay, some disappear. So I think part of what you were talking about is trying to figure out what process and what's involved in the ones that come and then disappear versus become active and, and dangerous. Just as a, as a last point, if you want to include it, that's where all the genome editing technologies come in, what I typically refer to as precision genome editing technologies, because using these technologies that are based on, on, on tools like CRISPR, we can engineer very specifically each of the mutations that are seen in cancer patients using experimental models in the lab to try to assess the function of each of these variants alone and in combination across different tumor types. Two different tumors might have the same genetic alteration, but that doesn't mean that both of them will respond to that same drug that targets that alteration. And understanding why that is, is important. We think it has to do with the both the combination of genetic events that are seen in that tumor and how they cooperate with the main mutation that is targetable, but also how the environment within the tumor and other types of variables influence those processes. Obviously, we need a, a, another gathering. Like This is looking at lung cancer, asking questions about what CRISPR can do for us <laughs> um, in lung cancer. I just think we have many more things to talk about, so I'm sure uh, this, this wonderful gathering will continue again. I'm not sure we will have exhausted all the questions people might have about how we learn about cancer and its process and everything else, but this was wonderful. Jane, do you have a, a wrap-up comment for us? We have opened up a, another can of worms and, <laughs> and 
And another direction to go into, um, and especially around Francisco's work around um, around the edit, genome editing tools. Um, I really, really hope that we can we can spend some time talking about that next time if Francisco will allow us. Because there are so many moving parts that relate to how this yeah. technology works. Yeah, that sounds good to Basic me. Terms. Yeah. We we right. need the, we need the Francisco show. We do. Well, that'll be, uh, yes, Francisco, away we go. Many thanks. We'll see you soon. And um, Jordan, as always, please, everyone listening to this, listen to our other podcast as well. And you are going to wow people at holiday cocktail (laughs) parties with your knowledge of, of genetics. So goodbye, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.